tie, isn't it straight? Good morning and welcome to Church at Home. My name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, If you're new to us, we're delighted that you've joined us and I do hope that our Bible talk this morning will be an encouragement to you and a blessing to you. We are assuming that you're already in fellowship with a local church and a talk like this isn't a substitute for that fellowship, so we do hope you'll continue in that fellowship. Now, we're currently in a series in Mark's Gospel, which is essentially an introduction to the Christian message. And uh, as the global crisis continues, many people are looking for something that explains what has happened and where lasting hope is to be found, and they're turning to the Bible for answers. Now, if that is you, then Mark's Gospel is the right place to start. If today's talk leaves you with questions, uh, we'd be delighted to help. All you need to do is visit our website, www.sbbc.org.za, and uh, use the contact tab on the home page to leave your details, and someone on the team will get back to you. So now, as we begin, uh, can I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and I will be reading from verse 35. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, Let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing, as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Well, just so far, uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand his word. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts may now and always be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now I want to begin by reminding you of a story that some of you will probably have heard before, but which I think is a helpful way into our passage this morning. It concerns a large ship. Uh, It's travelling through the night with a large searchlight shining the way ahead. 
Now, after a while, the captain sees another spotlight ahead of them, a kilometre or so away. So, the ship radios ahead with a message that says, uh, we're fairly big, get ready to change direction. And the reply comes back, you get ready to change direction. So, the ship sends another message, you'll be sorry if you hit us, we're about 50,000 tonnes. And the reply comes back, you'll be sorry if you hit us, we are the lighthouse. Now, I start with that because it's fairly obvious in that example that you can't uh, accuse the lighthouse of being either inflexible or unkind. It's there for your good, it's there for your safety. Now, as we've been studying Mark's Gospel together on Sunday mornings, we've seen that Jesus is rather like the lighthouse of the world. He is inflexible because he knows exactly why he's here but he's also incredibly good and kind. And what we've seen as we've been working our way through Mark chapter 1 is that Jesus has announced the kingdom. And uh, for those of you who've heard the word kingdom before in relation to Christianity, can I emphasise that you don't enter the kingdom when you die? Uh, many people think, I'll live my life the way I want to and then see whether I get into the kingdom when I die. Now that is quite wrong because Jesus says the kingdom is right on your doorstep. Now is the time to enter and the way you do that is by joining Christ the King. And of course when you join Christ the King you join the kingdom. And if you join the kingdom now then one day you will be with him in glory. So Jesus has brought the kingdom into the world. And we've also seen Jesus being incredibly kind and compassionate, healing people. So, at the end of our passage last week, he'd healed all the sick people in one town. And now he's under pressure. Why is he under pressure? Well, try to imagine what it would be like for you if you had the power to heal everybody suffering from COVID-19 here in Cape Town. Nobody else could do it but you can. That, I think, gives you some idea of the pressure Jesus must have been under at this point to make healing his life's work. Uh, you might be able to think of somebody you love this morning who's seriously unwell, and you may have said to yourself, well, I'd be willing to cut off my right arm if only they could get better. Well, Jesus has just spent the whole night healing people, He's seen the joy and the relief on all those faces. And uh, as our passage begins, he must be under intense pressure to make healing his life's work. But what we're going to see in our text this morning is that Jesus turns his back on that whole idea. And just when we might uh, want to accuse him of being hard-hearted, a sick man comes and stands in his path and Jesus wonderfully cures him. So, we're looking at the first paragraph from verse 35 to 39, under the title, A Clear Conviction, and the second paragraph from verse 40 to 45, we'll look at under the title, A Consistent Compassion. So, first of all, uh, chapter 1 of Mark, verses 35 to 39, A Clear Conviction. 
So as I say, there's been a whole night of healing and uh, we read in chapter 1 verse 35 that Jesus got up very early the next morning and went off to a solitary place. Uh, Literally, in the original, he went into the desert or perhaps as we would say, he went to the bush. He spent some time in prayer and uh, I need to tell you that Mark only records three times in his book when Jesus prayed. The other gospel writers tell us Jesus prayed a lot but of all the hundreds of times that Jesus must have prayed in his life Mark tells us only about three. First, here, after a night of healing. Second, in chapter 6, after a day of feeding. And third, in chapter 14, immediately before the cross. So in Mark's book, the three times that Jesus prays are crisis moments. They're moments when Jesus would have been asking, should I be doing this? Uh, Heavenly Father, I'm asking you to give me a clear head about the way forward. Um, I love healing people, so should I be doing this full time? Uh, I love feeding people, should I be doing that full time? I'm about to go to the cross but would it be better if I didn't? Would it be better if I remained here? And uh, each time Jesus emerges from his prayers knowing just what the Father wants him to do. So here in Mark 1, Jesus realises after prayer that he should not be healing full time. And in chapter 6, he realises after praying that he should not be feeding full time. And in chapter 14, he realises after praying that he must go to the cross and die for sinful people. Now one of the reasons that Jesus is able to die in our place is because he is perfectly obedient and we are not. And this is a great example of that, I think, in chapter 1. He spent the whole night dealing with sick people. He must be exhausted. It would have been so easy, wouldn't it, to justify carrying on with the healings. It would make him incredibly popular. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't want to have thousands of people flocking around him, wanting what he's got to offer and loving him for it? But instead he gets up very early. He goes off to pray. He lays the whole situation before his heavenly father. And then at great cost to his own popularity and at great cost to many sick people and their families, he is convicted He has a clear conviction that he's got something even more important to do. So when Simon Peter comes to him in verse 37, having hunted him down, and says, everybody's looking for you, Jesus says these shocking words in verse 38. We're not going backwards. We're going forwards. We're going to the next village because I've actually come to preach now you can imagine can't you the watching world saying at this point well that is absolutely the last thing we wanted to hear but Jesus knows what he's talking about as we'll see in a moment in passing please notice two interesting things first uh, Simon Peter becomes a source of unconscious temptation Uh, by coming up to Jesus and saying they love you back there Uh, please come back with us 
Now remember that Simon Peter was feeding Mark uh, most of the eyewitness information that helped Mark write his book. And Simon Peter is so humble and so honest that he's able to say to Mark, look, I've got to tell you, I failed Jesus a number of times. And in this situation, I failed him by saying, let's go back and heal people. And then a bit later, in uh, chapter 8, we see that Simon Peter said to Jesus, no, don't go ahead with the cross. Uh, We're going to protect you. Please, don't get crucified. So that's the first thing to notice. Notice, secondly, the, the little phrase, everyone's looking for you. It sounds like Jesus has become terribly popular. sounds very positive. But actually, the language in the original is rather disturbing. Because every time that Mark says people were looking for Jesus, Mark is actually telling us that they were coming either to control him or to do him harm. So when Jesus hears that people are looking for him, Jesus isn't fooled by that. I suppose it's a bit like um, people saying to a rich man, everybody loves you. Well, of course they do. Or um, saying to a very pretty girl, all the boys want to meet you. Sounds nice, but there is something slightly disturbing or sinister behind it. Well, Jesus is not fooled by crowds. He thinks very clearly. You and I, of course, do get fooled by crowds. When we see large crowds following a Christian leader, uh, we do tend to think, don't we, that he must be really brilliant. Uh, In fact, the approval of the culture is rarely a sign of faithfulness and truth. And Jesus is never fooled by crowds. Equally, he's not rocked by small numbers. He knows what he's doing. He knows that all his sheep, all his people, will come home at just the right time. So although it looks very harsh when Jesus says, we're not going back to that town to heal more people, actually he's speaking with perfect conviction and perfect compassion. And I'll tell you why. Because, you see, if he had pursued a healing ministry, day after day after day, it would just have been a temporary bandage on a deadly disease. He would have been making people well until they got older, and then they would die. So he wouldn't be saving them. He would just be postponing the inevitable. Uh, He would be dealing with the the symptoms rather than the underlying disease. Uh, He would be fixing people's bodies but not their souls. He wouldn't be getting them ready for glory. And therefore he'd be providing no hope for the future, no safe passage into glory. Yes, he would be popular. Uh, He would be solving immediate problems, but he wouldn't be loving people eternally. So this is the dilemma facing Jesus after a tremendously successful time of healing. People are saying, please, come back and do more of that. And the dilemma for Jesus is, well, should I keep going and preach the gospel so that people know how to be saved and eventually find themselves in glory, saved from hell? Or should I do something for people which will relieve uh, the immediate pain but without a safe passage into glory and no rescue from hell? Now, I suppose you might say, well, Couldn't Jesus do both? And in a sense, 
from time to time. Jesus did do both. But he knows that the key to his ministry is to tell the gospel. And the gospel revolves around his death. So if he spends all his time healing and there's no preaching and there's no dying, well, there's no future for anybody. So here we have the best doctor in the world, Jesus Christ. And the world is saying, put away your gloomy preaching, tell us everything's wonderful. And Jesus replies, no, I have to speak the truth so that people know that they do need to be saved and how to be saved and I must die on the cross so that they can be saved. And that, you see, is what marks a really good doctor, a really excellent saviour. So Jesus <coughs> is truly compassionate and I think we must thank God for his conviction that in the face of enormous pressure to do short-term superficial work, he didn't. I can't tell you how important this verse is for preachers and pastors today because there are so many things that could be done but which would get in the way of those things that should, that should and must be done. And I can't tell you how important this is for you as well because if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour you have an example here of someone who knew that he couldn't possibly do everything that people wanted him to do but worked out what he had to do and then made sure that it happened. And we need the wisdom of our Master if we're going to do those things that have eternal significance and not be distracted by the things that are popular today but actually don't last. So there's the first little incident. Uh, Jesus says no to the pressure to be a popular healer. And uh, the second little paragraph is where Jesus suddenly comes face to face with an individual who's sick, right in his path. And uh, I've called this a consistent compassion. Now you would think, wouldn't you, after the last few verses that we've read, that Jesus is simply going to walk around this man and say, no, uh, I just said a few minutes ago, I'm not going to be a big popular healer. But here's someone standing in front of him with great needs and Jesus is full of compassion. And we begin to realise that his conviction and his compassion fit perfectly together. But the conviction rules the compassion, which is the right way round. That's the way it should be. Uh, the conviction doesn't remove the compassion, but, but it rules the compassion so that those two things dance beautifully together. And can I say that of all people, South Africans know that a good leader needs both. Nelson Mandela had deep convictions about the changes that were needed in this country. But he also had tremendous compassion for the people who had held him captive and who'd caused so many of the problems. But you see, it was his convictions and his compassion working together that made healing and progress possible. Now when we look at this uh, first paragraph in Mark, with this very strong conviction that Jesus had, 
And then we come to this second paragraph, which Mark very brilliantly places after it. We see that conviction and compassion come together perfectly in Jesus Christ. Because if you got to the end of the first paragraph and you said, oh dear, Jesus sounds rather harsh here, this second paragraph shows us he's nothing of the kind. So a leper comes to Jesus in verse 40 with the question, are you willing to make me clean? Now notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, can you make me clean? Because he knows perfectly well that he can. The question is, are you willing? And Jesus, full of compassion, with this man right in front of him, is never going to walk around him. Rather, he, he reaches out and he heals him. Now, when I think about the church and the job of telling the gospel, which is not popular today, <clears throat> and uh, when I think about social action, which is far more popular, I think I'm greatly helped by these two paragraphs because we as a church need to know what we stand for and our primary job is to tell people the message of Christ so that they hear it, so that they believe it and so that they have eternal life. Now that is actually far more important than short-term social action programs even though those are necessary and wonderful. But we do have to focus on our primary task, which is to preach the gospel. But having said that, when some situation of need presents itself right under our nose, we would, I think, be very strange people if we weren't compassionate. And uh, in our context in South Africa, of course, that happens all the time. Now, as a church, we can't possibly... Uh, meet all the needs, we're too small and the needs are too many. So we have to work out which needs we can meet most effectively. But friends, whatever we decide to do, we must never, never, never push the gospel into second place because it's the gospel that is our primary responsibility. So this leper has come up to Jesus, I think making probably what would be described as a shock visit because you see the Old Testament law said that a leper should not go near anybody else you see a leper wasn't simply in trouble physically he was also in trouble socially and uh, in the Old Testament Leviticus 13 says that he was to live alone outside the community uh, he was to warn people to stay away from him by wearing very tattered and torn clothing and whenever he saw someone approaching, he was to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that there would be no contamination. So please will you notice that social distancing isn't new. Social distancing is right there in Leviticus 13. Because leprosy was a very frightening disease in the first century, just as frightening, in fact, as the coronavirus is today. So, by walking up to Jesus, the leper was in fact breaking Old Testament law. And therefore, one writer describes this man's approach to Jesus as a provocative and offensive encounter. But how does Jesus respond? 
verse, 45, verse 41, he responds with compassion. Now if you have a study Bible, you might find there's an alternative reading there. Some translations say that he responded with indignation. And there are two possibilities here. It was either compassion or indignation, or possibly both, because both fit the situation. Uh, it was perfectly in character for Jesus to feel compassion for this man, but perhaps also indignation, because after all, here is one of his creatures uh, in his world suffering the effects of the fall. And the answer to the question, are you willing to make me well, is, I am willing be clean and immediately the man is clean so now we know that with all of his convic conviction that preaching must come first Jesus is still full of compassion but in case you think that uh, Mark has forgotten the importance of salvation it is absolutely fascinating to see what happens after the healing of the leper uh, Jesus gives him a very strong message in the original language it says Jesus dismissed him he spoke to him very strongly with great authority and he said tell no one now I don't know how the man was expected to keep his mouth shut really but in any event Jesus does say tell no one uh, go to the priest because that's the Jewish law now the law said that uh, if you had been cured of leprosy you had to go to the priest so why does Jesus tell this man to do that I think a number of reasons first if he goes to the priest then the priest will reinstate this man into the community and that's important second if he goes to the priest and shows that he's been healed well the priest is certain to ask well how did this happen and he'll say Jesus of Nazareth so notice please at the end of verse 44 that Jesus says he is to go and see the priest as a testimony to them you see the idea is that the priest in the temple would prick up their ears and ask well who did this because when people in the Old Testament had leprosy and got healed it was always God who did it now it didn't happen very often uh, Miriam is one example uh, Naaman is another example and on both cases God did it and now here's a man and he's been cured and the priests are going to ask the question who did this? the answer will be Jesus of Nazareth and immediately they ought to be asking well is he perhaps the Messiah and then the third reason this man is to go to the priest is because it will actually help Jesus with his ministry because you see if the man does go public and tell everyone that uh, he's been healed well everyone's going to want to get on the bandwagon and say this is why Jesus has come into the world to make people well but of course Jesus hasn't come into the world to make people well he's come into the world to preach the gospel and die on the cross but if people start 
swarming around him saying, make me well, make me well, well, he's not going to be able to move. But if the man keeps quiet, well, Jesus can get on with his work. So can you see why Jesus tells this man to go to the priest? Three excellent gospel reasons. First, the man will be restored to the fellowship of God's people. Second, the priests will realise who is the source of this amazing healing power. And thirdly, Jesus will be able to keep doing his ministry. Three excellent gospel reasons. But, verse 45, the man was disobedient. He did the exact opposite of what he'd been told. He spread the news. Extraordinary, isn't it? Today, we say to the church, spread the news about Jesus. That most people keep quiet. But here, Jesus says, keep quiet. And immediately, the man goes out and spreads the news. And so, verse 45, please look at verse 45 carefully. This is so important. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Now, friends, there's something very special going on here. I wonder if you can see the significance of what's just happened. Uh, try and take a step back from the details for a moment and consider the big picture. Before he met Jesus, the leper was an outsider. He was excluded from the fellowship of God's people. But now he is restored to the fellowship of God's people. Everyone wants to hear what he has to say. By contrast, back in Capernaum, Jesus had been an insider. The whole town came to look for him. But now, after the encounter with the leper, Jesus is an outsider. He's forced to stay outside in lonely places. So Jesus and the leper have traded places. By restoring the man to the fellowship of God's people, Jesus pays the price of losing fellowship with God's people. And on a much bigger scale, you see, this is how the gospel works. By nature, we're outsiders. But through the gospel, we become insiders, members of God's family. But that comes at the expense of Jesus being driven out. And that's why when Jesus is on the cross with the sins of the world on his back, Jesus says, my God, my God, well, why have you driven me out, is really what he says. And the reason is that our sins are on his back and they need to be paid for. And Jesus is paying for them. He's driven away from fellowship with God and the gift that comes as a result is that you and I are welcomed in. Now you might be thinking this morning, well look, I'm not an outsider. Who on earth are you talking about? Well, let me ask you this. If you had uh, a two-storey house and you decided to rent it out, uh, perhaps the top floor to a lovely, tidy girl and the bottom floor to a difficult, messy boy, 
Over time, uh, as you made phone calls and you sent emails and you asked for rent and you asked for a response, neither the girl nor the boy took any notice of you whatsoever. They didn't return your calls. Uh, they didn't reply to your emails. They behaved as if you were completely irrelevant and they didn't pay their rent. Now, which of the two would you evict? Well, you'd evict both of them, wouldn't you? And you see, in the same way, whether you're the tidy girl or the messy boy, it's turning your back on Jesus Christ and saying, by your actions, if not by your words, Jesus is irrelevant, that makes you an outsider. It merits your eviction from fellowship with God. And you see, without hearing the gospel and responding to it, my friend, you will be evicted from fellowship with God permanently. But you see, the gospel says that Christ has paid to bring you back in. He's purchased your pardon and he's drawn you to himself. So, is this relevant? Is this important? Well, of course it is. It's uh, 23 years since Princess Diana died in a car crash in Paris. Uh, everyone remembers it. She was just 36 years old. Now, if we could bring her back from the dead and uh, interview her this morning and ask, please could you tell us, as you look back, what's really important? Uh, is it being a member of the royal family? Uh, is it having a string of boyfriends? Uh, is it solving the problem of landmines in Africa? I think she would probably say the most important thing in all eternity is to respond well to Jesus Christ who with great conviction came into the world and steadfastly went to the cross and with great compassion has carried your sin so that he might bring you into his family forever. Well, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his clear head. We thank you for his keen heart. We thank you for his wonderful work on the cross. We thank you for a gospel which is everlasting. We thank you for all that he's done at his expense for our benefit. And we pray that you would help us and every person listening or watching to respond with glad and joyful acceptance that they might enter into the blessing that you came to bring. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.